The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate, teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. After just a terrific day where the Dow surged 511 points, S&P shot up 1.2%. NASDAQ pole vaulted 1.16%. Bye, bye, bye! What would allow us to have more of these sessions? Now, we know they can happen. Days like today are the reasons why we stick around this otherwise ugly market, correct? But we also know they've been few and far between, which is why everything in this market is a trade until the bears are finally slain. And the bulls can trample unimpeded, which is not the case. After all, as I said last week, this market is deeply oversold. It remains that way even after today, so it can continue to bounce. For most of you, though, that's not enough. You don't want to bounce. You aren't traders. I don't want you to be traders. So what needs to change so there's no bounce and there's just investing? As I told members of the CNBC Investing Club in my, my every single week think piece that I put out Sunday, we're stuck in a bearish box with occasional bullish breaks like today. Still lurking. There are unrelenting negative forces, some of which are obvious and some of which are much more opaque. So what can turn things around for more than a day or two? Well, let's go over them. First, we need many, many more buyers of U.S. government debt. For the longest time, the natural buyers of U.S. treasuries were from overseas, especially China. Just a few years ago, they owned more than a trillion dollars in U.S. debt. That was rivaling Japan. Now China owns just over $800 billion, and you know what? They've been sellers, not buyers. These sales are part of the run-up in rates. If we want the bond market to turn around, they need to become buyers again. I don't see that happening. Japan isn't a buyer anymore either, just a holder. I can't see them increasing their stake. Our government needs to borrow massive sums of money to cover the deficit. Washington has no plans to rein in spending anytime soon. Anytime soon. I haven't seen one of you. That means we need more buyers to offset the impact of the Treasuries that they're selling or else interest rates will keep going higher. It's been a historic run higher and stocks will become ever less attractive versus bonds. That's why when we find out what issuance Treasury is going to give us when they publish the schedule Wednesday, there could be a major bond selling in anticipation of those sales. You see, we we did get a fourth quarter borrowing projection from Treasury today, and that was less than expected, uh, $776 billion, which was $76 billion lower than the previous uh, projection. That's positive. But not if Treasury sells 10, 20, or 30-year paper to meet that hole in the budget. Two, if we want to get out of the bearish box, we need the Fed to stop selling its bonds alongside those from Treasury. And Treasury's not stopping. Maybe the Fed should. The Fed, it could stop. But they're unlikely to after something like last week's 4.9% GDP growth number. The Fed sells bonds as a kind of de facto tightening. So they likely won't stop until the economy cools down. And that sure hasn't happened yet. 
Three, we need growth, but without inflation. That means when we get our employment numbers, say, on Friday, we need to see America still creating jobs, but just not nearly as fast. And with wages below what we've gotten used to, we, need, we would love deflation. We would settle for just a slowing in inflation. We got to get, look, if we don't get this stuff down, we're going to get another nasty sell-off. That's why I keep saying everything's a trade in this environment. No, I'm not saying this is one and done. I am saying that we are in a trading environment. Four, to get out of the box, companies need to give us better forecasts than we've been getting this earnings season. So many companies give us strong results, and you really think it's terrific, but then they just slash their outlooks, and it's so grim. On Semiconductor, oh, oh, that was the latest thing. What a fantastic company. Uh, with lots of chips headed in the auto industry, it had terrific numbers, but lousy guidance, and that's how a stock could fall $18 or 21%. Unforgettable in this market. I can't believe how downbeat these forecasts are. Last week's forecast that got cut that was crushed was Whirlpool. It just got annihilated. It was so horrible. Five, stocks need to stop getting slammed every time something goes wrong with another company in its sector, especially when there's a history of longer-term outperformance. Yeah, we owe Danaher for the charitable trust because, you know why? Historically, for as long as I've been in the business, and I'm talking about the 80s, this is a well-run company, best franchise for diagnostics, and the equipment needed to invent new drugs. I mean, really, it, its history is incredible. But its history means nothing because right now, everything is meaningless except for how a company does in its sector. And if it's bad, then boom. Any disappointment sends its stock down, too. Until Danner's stock stops being hurt by what I regard as negative pin action from its peers, this is an unsafe market. And that's just the analog for a lot of situations like this. Nobody gets the benefit of doubt in a bear market, not even the companies that have earned it. Six, the Magnificent Seven's done a remarkable job of masking the decline in the overall market. But this week, we get results from Apple, which I'd argue is the most difficult stock to game in this environment. Daily, we hear how Apple's a no-growth company with a stock that has no business being this high. How important is Apple? When it reports on Thursday night, it can determine what happens in tech until NVIDIA reports on November 21st. Wow, that's a long tail. But it's realistic. We don't just need a good quarter. We need a good quarter that they can get credit for. Tall order in a market where there seems to be so many analysts rooting against Apple and so many betting that it, too, will slash its forecast like on semi did. Seven, we need to see all the price targets come down already. So many stocks have fallen off your earnings, in part because their stocks have come down so much already that even if analysts have something good to say, they still need to cut their price targets or else they'd look insane. This dynamic creates an incredibly downbeat setup because all you ever hear is like, hey, great quarter, cutting price target. Only a decline in price to a level where it doesn't matter can change that. But we clearly aren't at that level yet. Eighth, we need to stop it with the wishful thinking about how the Fed's going to start, start cutting rates. I mean, there are so many people who don't want to buy stocks until the Fed starts cutting rates, but the Fed has told you that unless this economy puts together at least a half year's worth of soft numbers, it would be foolish to cut, and who can blame them? Look what would have happened if they cut, and then last week we got that 4.9% GDP growth. They'd be regarded rightly as idiots. Ninth, we have to find some way to stop wage inflation. Now, these deals, for instance, between the UAW and the automakers, they are fantastic for workers, but terrible, terrible for shareholders. The auto stocks are horrendous, and they will stay horrendous because now they have to lose fortunes making electric vehicles while the rest of the business becomes less profitable anyway. In this environment, you have to assume that any company facing labor strife will end up with a lower price earnings multiple. The UAW leader, Sean Fain, outsmarted everyone. He was incredibly effective at getting much more money for his people than anyone thought possible. It's terrific for his members, awful for anyone who owns the stocks. He deserves a lot of credit as a representative of his flock, even as he crushed a swath of stocks with his stratagems, including my travel trust, which owns Ford. Tenth, 
The 10th thing that needs to change is something that's beyond all our can, which is the war in, Ga- in Gaza has to be contained to that area. It can't uh, escalate into a regional conflict with Iran. Markets went down big on Friday, in part because it seemed possible we could wake up to a much wider war with the U.S. involved. Then if we don't get one over the weekend, well, then we have a rally just like we had today. Can these things happen? As usual, I want to say, of course. Do they all have to happen for us to break out of this bearish box? Unfortunately, I think we need most of them. Or we'll simply have endless sell-offs punctuated by these short covering rallies. And the small rallies can only be used to lighten up. Bottom line, look, I don't want to rule out these positives, especially when we're oversold. But I don't see the Chinese government buying bonds or the Fed stop selling them. And that backdrop in itself makes it much harder to own anything in this environment. Unfortunately, right now, the bears are in charge, with the bulls merely paying periodic visits to the New York Stock Exchange, like the visit they paid today, near the end of the month. And the one they'll probably pay tomorrow, when this miserable October finally comes to an end. Robert in New York. Robert. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Thank I'm you doing well. How are you? Oh, thank you. Good. Thank you very much. You know, I read that NVIDIA augmented their large language model with 30 years of chip designs to uh, for their engineers. So mm-hmm. this is going to give the senior chip designers about 60% of their time to developing new uh, chips. Is this uh, development with these chat boxes really going to catapult NVIDIA over all these other AI companies Uh, that are coming out with chips? It's a great question. Now, they are well ahead of everybody else, and that's because Jensen Wong had a lot of foresight, but also because they kind of saw what could happen and took down a lot of chips. Now, that is not a reason to buy the stock of NVIDIA. The reason why you buy the stock of NVIDIA longer term is it's got the most thoughtful AI uh, content. The reason why you might not want to buy it short term is because the market's awful. And I want you to make money when you buy something, not lose money. Let's go to Steve in Connecticut, please. Steve. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, You're quite welcome, Steve. Glad you called uh, I'm a club member, and I thank appreciate you. all you all do uh, for all of us out there. Thank, thank you very much. But my question today is, instead of buying Wells Fargo, I bought Bank of America um, because I've been so impressed with the CEO and the performance. But I'm in the house of pain, being down uh, 38%. But I don't need the money uh, at least for eight years. Okay. Then should I buy more, or should I... Um, uh, sell and roll into something else? No, no, no. no. I think your analysis, by the way, is spot on about Brian Moynihan and what he's done at Bank of America. I think he's sensational. I don't think it matters right now. It's a bank stock. We bought uh, Wells Fargo for the trust because Charlie Sharp's engineering an amazing turnaround and had a really great quarter. But no, I mean, it just doesn't matter. A bank stock, they're all trading the same. I think to lose hope right here at this level, though, would be a mistake. How about William in Indiana, please? William. Hello, yes, William. William, it's Jim. Jim. How can I help you? What's up? Yes. Do you think Broadcom will close the deal? Do you think Broadcom is a millionaire maker? I, I think uh, I think Broadcom with simple ABGO is definitely a buy either way. If they close the deal, then it has a higher price earnings multiple and go up. If they don't, then I think Hawk Can, the CEO, will buy as much stock as possible because he thinks the stock is very cheap. I will say this. I know that this deal was supposed to close, and they're claiming it's going to close very soon, but there's a paperwork issue. I need to see the deal close before I can tell people, look, this stock is going much higher. Close or walk away, not limbo. 
Unfortunately, even though sometimes we see some visits from the Bulls, right now the Bears are still very much in charge. It doesn't mean today, tomorrow can't go higher, but the Bears are in charge. At least we know that this miserable October is soon coming to an end. And the stocks tend to go up on the final days of a really bad month like this one. On Man Money tonight, VF Corp has a new CEO at the helm. It's Bracken Dow, formerly head of Logitech. We've had him on so many times. So with a tech executive in control, is this what an apparel company like VF needs to turn itself around? Or is he a style executive? I would argue the latter. Let's hear more from the plan for the man himself. Then this earnings season, we're seeing one theme soar in the face of some volatility. I'm talking about the aerospace sector. I'm digging into the cohort and seeing if this bull market can continue. Yes, there are bull markets somewhere. And the last few years have been volatile for the travel sector. So what should you make of a cruise line stock like Carnival at these levels? I'm getting the latest on the story from the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need indeed. After the close today, VF Corp, the footwear and apparel company you know as Vans, North Face, Timberland, Dickies, Supreme, and many others, reported what we call a kitchen sink quarter. This summer, the long-struggling company brought in Bracken Dow from Logitech. Remember him as the new CEO, and now he's got a real tough job. But he's also got a great track record. Logitech up almost 750% for the time he took over in 2013 through the time he retired this summer. 
You know, that's uh, more than triple what the S&P did. Tonight, Darrell took his first step toward turning VF Corp around. The company reported inline sales with slightly weaker than expected earnings. And more importantly, it straight up withdrew its full year earnings forecast, slashed its free cash flow guidance, slashed its dividend, and warned that Van Steger business wouldn't get better this year. We call this a kitchen sink quarter because management throws everything bearish in there. Get ahead of things. What's the plan for a turnaround? Let's check in with Bracken Dow, the new president and CEO of VF Corp. To get a better read on the situation, Mr. Dow, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, it is so good to be here, Jim. I couldn't wait to see you again. I feel the same way, Bracken. I think that what you have done is taken on like you did with Logitech, a very tough situation. You're no stranger to tough situations. Can you kind of give us a sketch about what you've been thinking in the first hundred days? Yeah, you know, I, I could be more excited. You know, as you said, you know, I, I had a turnaround when I got to Logitech. I had a turnaround long ago, my first job on Old Spice. And uh, so I'm kind of accustomed to being there. But I'm a very long-term person underneath. And so I'm, I'm only doing things that really looking for a really long-term migration. I really see four things that we need to do, Jim, in short order. And then we'll have a bigger strategy that will follow. The first one is our U.S. business has always lagged the rest of the world. So we're taking the same approach we've taken to, to EMEA and to APAC, and we're applying it to the U.S., and we're going to put it under under one leader, very strong leader. And so that's step one. Number two is we're going to deliver the Vans turnaround. You know, Vans has been in a decline for a couple of years now, came off a very, very high number, now it's coming down. We're going to deliver that Vans turnaround. Third is we're going to lower our cost base. You won't be surprised at that. So we're going to do a $300 million restructuring, really reduce the cost across the board, and reinvest back into innovation and brand building. And then finally, we're going to delever, lower our debt, and really strengthen that balance sheet. So those are the four key priorities, super simple, super clear, super, we're, we're really intensely after them all. All right, so what attracted you to this? I mean, Logitech, I, we all use the devices. We all use them ever since you were there. You uh, introduced so many great ones. Why this task right now for you? Well, I loved Logitech, and I had such an incredible time there. But I, I, you know, I was getting towards the, I turned 60, Jim. And so I decided, you know, if I'm going to have one more go at something in a public company arena, it's got to be something I'm excited about. And this is not just one brand. It's really an array of brands. They're household names. They're all deeply embedded in the culture. They're super powerful. And the business needs to turn around and, and, and turn back into something. These brands, we already have some of this stuff is just on fire. I mean, the North Face is a phenomenal brand. And Vans has the potential to get back to being one. Supreme's super interesting. Timberland's like a, a part of the hip-hop culture. So I just got very excited about not just the categories, but the brands themselves. Well, let's talk about something that you said as one of the top priorities. You said you have to deliver. Number four, how can you deliver without selling some of these offerings? Well, we, we've announced that we're going to sell a very high-performing asset, by the way. It's called the PAX business. It's East PAC and Jansport and Kipling. That business continues to do very, very well. So that is that is going through a sale process. We're in the middle of that now. And between that, we we uh, announced we'd lower our dividend today. Right. So that's another contribution to delevering. So when you add that up with our performance, we will delever and we will, you know, we've got two tranches of debt coming up, uh, about a million, a billion seven fifty in total. And our intention is to pay off both those off. Okay. Now, what is an analog that you can give me of a sneaker turnaround? They're hard to find. An analog, you know, I, look, I have a lot of respect for uh, what New Balance has done. Yes. Yeah, I think New Balance is a great story. Great story. I mean, I, you know, I, I was never a New Balance customer, but I, 
But I remember New Balance when I was growing up, and I thought of them as just a running brand. I think they've done a super nice job. Yeah, they are doing It's a great example of what can turn around. Now, you know, I came back from Iceland recently, and I wanted to recommend this before you got here. I said, well, i got to find this VF Corp for the club, because when you're in Europe, North Face is the, that's the most predominant brand. How can that happen yeah. again here in the United States? Can that occur? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, the bottom line is the, the, the platform that we're running in Europe has been in place now for several years. It's just had success across all our brands. So we're going to bring that platform right into the U.S. What is a platform? It's a way of doing business that basically transfers best practice across the business very, very quickly and effectively. So, yeah, I absolutely think that the North Face can be as strong here as it is in Europe. I know that you're a guy who would say, Jim, you can't look back, you just look forward. But I remember uh, the in- initial VF Corp because it was very close to my home in Pennsylvania. And then I heard they had to move to North Carolina because that would be close to where the mills were. Are, are there any mills in, in, in Colorado? Is that, that move make sense in any way? No, we're, we're out of mills now. But the, the, the one thing that Colorado has is it's very close to those mountains, those Rocky Mountains. And the North Face is all about being in the mountains and outside. Um, so, so I think from that standpoint, it's a very good thing. We also have these brands called Smartwool and Icebreaker, which if you haven't, if, if you've never tried one, they're amazing. I mean, Smartwool—it's merino wool brands that are really a certain kind of merino wool that is very, very comfortable, very warm, very breathable, and natural. All right. Well, that's a good example of something I didn't know and why I think that you're the right guy for the job. There are people who say, Jim, he's a tech guy. How could he be there? I think you're a brand guy who is very aware of fashion and what people like. That's what I always felt you were ahead of in Logitech. Am I too optimistic? Do I am I making statements that perhaps I, I'm going to regret because Bracken Dial's going to take a little <laughs> longer time than I, than I hope he does? My job is to make you so right. That's absolutely what I'm going to do. Well, I believe it. I, I think that one of the things that you uh, understand more than anyone is, is that there are brands that have a technical nature, actual technical yeah. that people really like because they're authentic. You have got these brands. Some of them are technical, but some are just kind of like out there. And I look, I have to tell you, when I see the Vans decline, I think, what was the what was Vans that it became something else? It was an authentic brand and it seemed like it became a knockoff of itself. Well, you know, I think what Vans really was for those, and, and I hope that there are some people listening who are big Vans fans, what Vans really was, was inside all of us, there's a little bit of an underdog, a little bit of an outsider. Not everybody, but almost everybody. And that, and Vans really catered to that through the skater community. But it was really for all those people, whether you skated or not. And I think we got so big and we, we ended up kind of catering to other people that were just purely into fashion that we, which is not bad, but we kind of lost our way on really making sure we're always appealing to that, that certainly slightly mischievous, fun side that we all have inside. Now, is that also like Timberland, which at one point was just the shoe that you wanted to climb a mountain with, then it became a hip-hop shoe, but it, it, then it became kind of just another boot. Yeah, you know, Timberland, it, it's so associated with hip-hop. This is the 50th year anniversary of hip-hop. You probably knew that. If you didn't, you do not now. And it's also the 50th year of that boot, of that wow. beautiful boot. We just, we just created a movie that's really amazing. Susie Mulder, who runs our business. And her whole team created this movie that is just, it's worth watching. I don't know well, where you can watch it yet. I'll, I'll try to make it available, but anyway. it celebrates the fact that this really was part of the culture, Timberland. And, it, and and our goal is to really leverage that. Well, I hope you will come on repeatedly because you're a straight up front guy. And by the way, I am pulling for you, okay? I'm just straight up. Not about friends, about money, but I am pulling for Bracken Dow, VF Corp president and CEO. <laughs> hey, great to have you back on the show. Great to see you. 
Thank you, Jeff. Man Money's Thank back you. after the break. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Now that the market's having a rare, terrific day, I want to focus on one of the most positive themes we picked up from the last three weeks of earnings season. I'm talking about the resilient bull market in aerospace. For a long time, we had a ton of confidence in aerospace because the airlines were booming and they desperately needed to buy new planes in order to meet all that post-COVID revenge travel demand that we always talked about here. In the past few months, though, we started worrying about an increasingly tapped-out consumer especially after a number of airlines pre-announced the downside. Sell, sell, sell. But last week, we got some very positive news, big time, uh, some updates from major aerospace companies that frankly made me feel pretty darn good about this industry. Let's take them one by one, starting with the big Boeing. Now, here's a company that's had a, really a terrible track record for years. Calling them the gang that couldn't shoot straight would be a compliment. And more of the, these problems cropped up in the, in the run-up to the quarter. And that was one reason why the stock had sold off hard from its highs in early August. When Boeing actually reported last Wednesday, the headline numbers were mixed, better than expected revenue paired with larger than expected loss, and some not-so-hot cash flow numbers. Margins were ugly, too. The stock finished down 2.5%, but it was a bad day. However, when you dig deeper, I thought there was a lot to like, not dislike. Despite the software quarterly cash flow, Boeing reaffirmed its full-year operating cash flow and free cash flow forecasts, and management said their free cash flow should grow next year. That was probably the most important metric. In short, things really are getting better. They even talked about doing $10 billion of free cash flow in 2025 and 2026. The analysts don't seem to believe them, but if Boeing can hit that target, it's going to be very positive for the stock. I like that. More important, if you listen to the conference call, CEO Dave Calhoun had a ton of really positive commentary. He said demand in Boeing's commercial businesses, and I'm going to quote him, incredibly robust. He told us they're on track to hit key production goals for the previously troubled 737 and 787. In fact, he predicted major production growth by 2025, and I think that's pretty amazing. It confidently can ramp up production because sales of the 737 and 787 remain strong. Do you know that they had about 400 net orders in the third quarter? And their overall backlog now stands at a staggering $469 billion, including over 5,100 commercial aircraft. To me, that's, that's the key point. I know it's hard to stay focused on the long-term opportunity here. No one's thinking long-term at all in this market uh, when Boeing has so many short-term hiccups. But the long-term story, I got to tell you, I think it's incredible. Although, admittedly, you need a lot of patience to stick with this. When we didn't have it for the trust, I, I now regret that. We also heard about aerospace strength from a couple of high qualified, really high quality diversified industrials that seem to have been lost in the shovel. How about Honeywell, which we own for the Charitable Trust? It reported a solid quarter, cautious guidance, so the stock didn't get much credit. But their aerospace business is on fire. Honeywell said their organic aerospace sales were up 18% year over year. According to them, quote, it's led by robust aftermarket demand driven by increased flight activity, particularly in air transport, with commercial aftermarket sales up more than 20% year over year, end quote. Guys, that's fabulous. Even RTX, a company formerly known as Raytheon, managed to rally after it reported, despite being a total 
the house of pain. For the past few months, RTX has been slammed by a major recall for hundreds of jet engines made by the Pratt Whitney division. That said, this is a problem that will cost them three to three point five billion dollars pre-tax operating profits. They assured me that's about it won't go over that over the next several years. Yet the company lost roughly forty billion dollars of its market cap from the time the story broke in late July to the stock's lows over this month. That is absurd. It's looking like a mistake, and not just because uh, this is a defense contractor in a world where there's suddenly big conflict in the Middle East. Just as important to RTX last Tuesday, they reported a solid quarter with an incredibly strong aerospace business. Their Collins Aerospace Unit reported 16% sales growth, well ahead of what the analysts were looking for. It looks like a good acquisition there. Nearly all of that strength came from excellent commercial sales, with commercial aftermarket sales up 30% year-over-year, commercial original equipment sales up 27%. And if you back out the impact of the Pratt & Whitney recall, their aircraft engine business would have had 70 15% organic sales growth. You see that mid to high teens numbers. You keep getting them in this industry. But if you want to know the single best story from the aerospace industry, well, that would be General Electric, which is currently in the middle of a breakup. They spun off their healthcare business as GE Healthcare Technologies at the beginning of the year. And now they're, they're about to spin off their power business as GE Vernova, which, by the way, seems pretty good right now. That means their main GE will be a pure play on aerospace. And the prospect of a standalone GE uh, aerospace stock I got to tell you, I mean, I, let me just put it right out there. Bye, 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 this is some of these numbers from the GE Aerospace Division. Orders up 34% to $9.8 billion. Revenue up 25% to $8.4 billion, thanks to 31% growth for commercial services and 23% growth for commercial engines. And the segment's profit grew 33% to $1.7 billion, thanks to margin expansion. On GE's conference call, which was just a victory lap, Kramer Fave chairman and CEO Larry Colt said the strength in aerospace was driven by, and I quote, robust demand and solid execution, end quote. Although we also know that the company's still navigating some supply chain challenges, which has really kind of got me down. But it, it makes those numbers I just mentioned look even more impressive, frankly. Imagine how well GE Aerospace can do when they got that supply chain sorted out. Meanwhile, management's outlook for the future uh, became incrementally more exciting, more positive. In particular, GE said that deliveries for some of its next-generation LEAP engines will be pushed into the fourth quarter into 2024 to 2025. It's incredible to think about uh, what the numbers could have been like if those deliveries had happened to schedule. But I feel pretty good knowing that business is going to boost the next several quarters. And that's why GE stock jumped 6.5% last Tuesday in response to the quarter, to the point where it's now up a cool 68% year-to-date. That's an amazing run. Here's the bottom line. As you hear companies reporting this earnings season, remember that you don't want to just ask about their own company-specific results. You also want to hear what they have to say about entire industries. So far this earnings season, we've gotten clear evidence that the bull market in aerospace is alive and kicking, even though many pessimists thought it was about to get sent to the slaughterhouse. Not all of these are clean stories. Boeing's got a track record of, lou- track record of lousy execution. I'm not changing my mind on that. RTX just had those jet engine recalls. GE's great, but it's in the middle of a breakup. That said, the overall strength of this aerospace market is enough to justify buying any and all of these stocks right here. Let's go to Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer, my mad former Ford Falcon dweller friend, how are you? I am doing well, thank you. Happy to get out of that car and into my Ford Maverick, which I've only had one warranty problem to say, but that's all right. What's going on? Jim, this morning on Squawk on the Street, you mentioned this company is remarkable and should receive more than its fair share of U.S. defense budget spending. Of course, I'm talking about L3 Harris. Down some 15% on the year, it has been a consistent market performer. 23 analysts average a 30% upside from here. So, Jim, 
Will you give LHX your blessing in today's difficult stock pickers environment? Dave, it's the last of the uh, defense contractors that seems to be unheralded, even though their actual products would be used by any warfighter. So I think it's probably uh, the other ones. A lot of them are just like they make these big programs that aren't going to help the situation. Warfighters need L3 Harris's stuff. That's why I both I invite them on. And I think you should buy it right here, Dave. And thank you always for the nice words. Richard in California. Richard. Hey, hi, Jim. Richard, what's up? Jim, first off, I'd like to thank you for all your no BS analysis over the years. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I very say, kind. Anybody that can stand up in front of a million people and admit they're wrong sometimes, that's a guy you can trust. Thank you. I mean, look, what can I say? I'm in a business where if I were Ted Williams and batted 400 in a season, people would hate me anyway. What can you do? <laughs> well, listen, Jim, I've been having great success with your advice, and a few years ago you had advised me on this one. I looked it up. I liked it. I got it. It's been doing well, although, you know, this year tanked a little bit. Right. But it, re- it reported on Thursday, and it shot up, and it came back down, and I'm waiting. I, I want to keep it long. Is this a, t- a good time to buy now that it tanked a little bit? What do you think of Carrier Global? Okay, I think Dave Gillen did a great job. I know there are a lot of people who are betting against him now because he's making this big German acquisition. I've, I've looked at that acquisition nine ways to Sunday. I think it is very solid. I think the Carrier is a great buy here. You buy some at 47, it gets to 45, you buy a little more. And that's how I feel about it. Thank you for listening to what I'd say, and thank you for those incredibly kind words. All right, so far this earnings season, we've gotten clear evidence that the bull market in aerospace is alive and kicking, even though many pessimists thought it was about to get sent to the slaughterhouse. They were wrong. Much more had money had, including my Susan with Carnival. After putting a record third quarter revenue result, is this the turnaround investors are hoping for for a cruise line? Or could a large debt position keep many on the sidelines until it's paid down? I think then it'll be too late. I'm digging the story with the CEO. Then this morning report, McDonald's gave us a glimpse into the pressure the consumer faces while price increases continue to mount. So when will these increases be the straw that breaks the camel's back? I'm sizing up the situation. And of course, order calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. so worried about the health of the consumer that they often don't take it seriously when consumer-oriented companies report great numbers. For example, roughly a month ago, Carnival, yeah, the big cruise line company, put a strong top and bottom line beat with amazing bookings, yet the stock actually fell nearly 5% in response, probably because management cut their full-year EBITDA forecast, but that was because of higher fuel costs. I don't know if people didn't. How could they not have known that? Carnival's kept getting hit. It's down 70% over the course of October. So who's going to be right here? The company that says things are great going or the, or the investors who seem to be either misinformed or decided who cares? Let's take a closer look with Josh Weinstein. He's the CEO of Carnival Corporation. Learn more, Mr. Weinstein. Welcome to that money. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Okay, so I have to admit, I am confused. And we talked it over in the office. You, a lot of people are saying, well, when are you going to get back to 2019? You crushed 2019. A lot of people are saying, well, maybe bookings aren't that good. The bookings are incredible. A lot of people are saying that, well, the onboard spend is not that good. That was completely wrong, too. The onboard support is great. So tell me what I'm missing uh, that makes people realize that this is an inexpensive stock. So... You sound like me, um, so I appreciate it. Yeah, because well, I've done the homework, and, and obviously you're living it. You know, we had a, we had a tremendous quarter. We outperformed on every single metric that we put out. Uh, I use one word to describe the third quarter: record. 
record revenues, record yields, record pricing, record customer deposits, record bookings. So not just in the immediate, but thinking right. about that future trajectory. Um, and so we're performing, our brands are delivering, and we'll keep doing that, and hopefully the stock will catch up. And on fuel, I mean, I've noticed that, I know you have to lock in certain prices, but gasoline year over year is not so bad. I mean, that cannot be the reason why you shouldn't own the stock. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. I mean, fuel is going to go up, fuel is going to go down. The one thing that we are maniacal about is use less. And then it really doesn't matter what the price is. And so we cut our consumption every single year. You know, we peaked in 2011. Even though we're 30% bigger today, it's 10% less fuel that we are using. And that is a testament to all the work that we put into that. Um, initiative. Now, uh, let's talk about balance sheet. I had thought that perhaps, you know, I approach this kind of differently. I know you're coming on. I want to see what went into the stock price. You pay down a lot of debt. You have huge free cash flow. Uh, there is a path here for you to go back one day to having much less debt. Absolutely. You know, we've already, we peaked in January. We've already paid it down $4 billion from that peak. We've set out long-term targets such that by 2026, we anticipate being back to investment-grade leverage metrics. It's up to the rating agencies to, to give us a credit for that and, and rate us accordingly. And we do see a path. We have a tremendous amount of free cash flow generation capability in the business. Our new build pipeline, so our CapEx, as you look forward, is significantly lower than it's ever been. We've only got four ships on order. Um, and that means we have a tremendous amount of headroom to pay down debt over this next three-year period. Now, I know from uh, the other people who run cruise ships, I've not talked to you about this directly, that what always seemed to hurt them was new supply coming on. But you actually, as you just mentioned, there isn't a lot. So there's really no, uh, I see, barricade to higher prices because people are at 109% capacity. No one seems to blink. That's absolutely right. So we can focus on same-store sales, right, and right. generate all that demand with less supply in the pipeline. You don't need new ships to generate demand. You need great brands and great guest bases, and that's what we have, and we're leading into that. Labor? Is labor the problem? Cost? No, no, I don't think so. I think we, we you know, we, we, we try to be competitive. We have to be competitive, but that is being managed in the, in the normal course. Certainly, inflation, I think everybody's found, is stickier. And even though it's decelerating inflation, it's not as fast a deceleration. But you were the we first want. person to actually say it right on your conference call. You said it's not like it's deflation, it's just inflation's de less fat. And, that, and people don't seem to understand that. Yeah. And to me, what, what you explained is it's not like things are going down and prices are going down, they're going up less. And to me, other than the fact that you seem to have a, a, a product that the market can bear, uh, it isn't like you're able to make huge amounts of money on board because you have to pay more for things that are on board. We can make a pretty good amount of money. Uh, we, we absolutely can. And we're always trying to be thoughtful about how do we run ourselves more efficiently? How do we get smarter on our sourcing, leverage our scale to the maximum effect? But as you said, it's not a matter of going into deflation. This is about inflation finally slowing down. How about some markets that have historically been good that maybe aren't so good right now? Well, for us, you know, it, there's a huge difference between this year and a year ago. You know, when I, if I was sitting here a year ago, we would have been talking an awful lot about the challenges of Germany and Italy and the U.K. and the concerns in the environment around, you know, fuel prices. Will I have fuel to heat my home? 
um, and what's the impact on the consumer psyche. I will tell you that as part of those records that I was talking about in our third quarter, that wasn't just driven by North America. That was our European brands coming on strong. Actually, both of our continental European brands yields higher this summer than they were back in 2019. So cruising is back in our established mm-hmm. markets. Now, uh, any lingering? I know there's some bad publicity about COVID, but I don't know if it has any, not playing any role at all, right? Some, no. And then some market taken out by, uh, by Ukraine. Yeah. but not anything that could be made up immediately? Uh, that's pretty much right. I mean, obviously, the, the Ukraine has caused a, a, a ripple effect on our itinerary planning. Uh, you lose St. Petersburg, which is one of the most high-yielding high trades that we had. It probably knocked about two points off of what we would have achieved over the third quarter. Right. So instead of being up seven points in price, we were up five points in price. Uh, horrific Middle East, Israel, Gaza, no impact, right? Well, I mean, from, I mean, from no, a human perspective, say, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's, um, you know, I'll, I'll, But that's not a destination. It's not. We have about less than 1% of our capacity would touch Israel on, on stops, on okay. ports of call, and that's already been managed through, and, and obviously safety first. So we, we, our assets are mobile, so we can move them. But I also want to make it clear, you're not in a position to you pay down much more debt to be able to buy stock. That's not in the... Priority number one, two, and three is reduce the debt load, uh, and we're going to do that through the cash generation, which is going to take a few years. Uh, right, no but at the same time, that. it's obvious that there is a tremendous demand for what you produce. That's, People love the cruise. That's what the real takeaway of this period was. They love the cruise more than anyone realized because it's I, a bargain. I, I, we can end it on that note if you want because that's absolutely true. Well, that's how we feel. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Josh Weinstein. He's the Carnival uh, Corporation CEO. Uh, you heard, I, I hit him with every single one of the things that I thought might be driving the stock down. And you heard the answers, and the answers aren't bad at all. I think they're good. Man, money's back there. Right. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dad, over the lightning round. Let's start with Gary in New York. Gary. Hey, Jim. Uh, give me the long and short on what you think of Corning. Okay, they reported a disappointing quarter. In this market, it stays disappointing. There's just no bounce. Maybe next year. That's how I feel about Corning. Let's go to Jonah, Massachusetts. Jonah. Oh, man, good to talk to you. How can I help? Thank you for taking my call, Jim. First time caller. It's been a long oh, time. fantastic. I'm glad you called. I want to give a quick shout out to my dad, Scott, for introducing me to the world of investing. And most importantly, the best show on television, Mad Money. Jim, wow. I've been praise. watching Thank this growth stock for the okay. past couple of months, and I've seen it absolutely explode. They just reported their fourth consecutive quarter of year-over-year triple-digit earnings growth, and it's a data center play benefiting from AI tailwinds. Jim, what's your take on Vertiv? Ticker symbol VR. Ever since Dave Cody, who's the chairman, got involved almost day-to-day, I'm telling you, these guys have raised price to where they know that there is plenty of demand, and yet they have put out the absolute best products, and I completely agree with you. I think it's a buy. Let's go to Marty in Pennsylvania. Marty. Hey, Jim, a hearty booyah from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Eagle Country. You bet it is. What's going on? The the stock I need help with is Texas Instruments. I've owned it for 20 years. Just hold on to it. Just hold on to it. Now, they are very shareholder friendly. 
But then again, they do have a lot of industrial that is not doing that well. Auto not uh, auto has been the one area that's been good. That's not going to be good. Uh, comms is really bad. Uh, you can hold on to it, but understand you're not going to make a lot of money in right now because that was a really terrible last quarter. Joe in New Jersey. Joe. Mr. Kramer, thank Joe. you for taking my call. Of course. What's happening? Uh, with better than expected earnings and positive results from Keytruda, is Merck a buy? Yes, it is. I thought the Keytruda results were incredible. I think Merck is doing very, very well. And that is one inexpensive stock when you look at what can happen with Keytruda, which may be, again, the greatest selling drug of all time. Let's go to Connor, please. Connor. Hey, Jim. Uh, with the colder weather ahead of us here in the Northeast, is it time to look at Algonquin Power and Utilities? You know, it's a good utility. I was going over with Ben Stoto today, uh, who's the research director, and we were like, look at these utilities. They're like 6 7 8%. Yes. The answer is yes. I see a lot of stocks that have come down to the point where I think that the utilities are buys. Let's go to Sam in Massachusetts, please. Sam. Hey, Jim. Thank you, bud. Um, of course. My company just delisted from Dublin and uh, debuted on the NYSE um, September 25th. What are your thoughts on the CRH, Jim? You know what? I want to look at it again. After after Lindy delisted from Germany and went to U.S., it was a terrific opportunity and a catalyst. Let's do some work on it before I just come and say it looks good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. When management at McDonald's points out the pressure on the consumer while still pushing through strategic price increases, I wonder what's happening to companies that sell less affordable merchandise. So I've always considered McDonald's to be one of the greatest bargains on earth. And this quarter proves that as sales were pretty darn good, and its stock's not bad either, even after its shares rallied $4.39 today in response to a good quarter. However, I think their warning on the consumer this time, spot on, too. Why is the consumer so cash-strapped? Now, we often read that it's because people have run out of cash that they saved during the period when the earth stood still, otherwise known as the COVID lockdown. Uh-uh. I, I got to assume that inflation is far more important at this point. Almost every company I know has taken several targeted price increases during this economic expansion. And it's an expansion. Remember, GDP growth just came in at 4.9%. We saw that last week. It's pretty easy to see why businesses think they can get away with it. Plus, with unemployment rate below 4%, why not take a chance? Why not raise prices? They know the customers can afford it. Of course, only some companies can pull off these price hikes and have them stick. For instance, like Chipotle, right? They, they, they're doing so well, and they're so well-liked that it's been able to take small incremental price increases that haven't bothered anyone. That's why its stock keeps advancing. You know I think it's going to 2000 However, when I think about everything that we need to buy, it's clear that it's all gotten more expensive. With the possible exception, maybe your heating and electric bill, thanks to low natural gas prices, gasoline might be a little bit cheaper year over year. To me, it feels like the Federal Reserve may be actually on the cusp of winning its war against every company that's raising prices. We know that even as home builders are making a huge amount of money per house, the median price of a home has fallen from the mid-400s to the low 400,000. I think that if long rates rise from 5 to 6%, then a mortgage will cost 9%. And unless you can put it, get a teaser rate, they are giving you, uh, putting a gigantic amount of money down, though, then you'll be priced out of the housing market until homes get back to the 300,000 mark, where they were pre-COVID. I believe autos are headed there, too, or else their stocks wouldn't be so horrendous. Same with auto dealers. Cars are just too expensive. Finally, there's a reason why almost all the retail stocks, including the dollar stores, are way, way down. 
they too put through price hikes that are no longer holding. And that's why the real price cutters, Amazon, Costco, Walmart, and TJX, are the only companies, the only true winners here. Those companies are offering prices that still attract consumers, namely prices they, that feel like they did before the pandemic made everything more costly. We know the Fed is eventually going to win its war on inflation by raising interest rates and tamping down on liquidity. But I think that what we're really seeing is that all the companies that raise prices aggressively, from food to cars to homes or even more discretionary parts of healthcare, are now finding out that they took things too far. It's no longer enough to cut a few ounces out of a bag of dog food while you raise price sneakily. Nobody's putting up with that anymore. And I think we'll eventually see the same story play out with snack food, soda. Ah, their stocks certainly say that the prices have gone too high, don't they? The consumer pushback's finally happening, and it's pressuring margins. Yet the era of riskless price inflation is now over. Bad news for most of these businesses, but great news for you, the consumer. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Disclaimer. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.